This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We are fortunate today to uh, have a very special guest in studio, Jean-Yves Duclos, who is the uh, Federal Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development, is in town today, and he's right here in studio for us on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, first of all, welcome back to Hamilton, Mr. Minister. Good to have you here today. Good morning, Bill, and good morning to everyone listening. Uh, not your first trip here, as you mentioned, in your academic life before that. You've, uh, you've been here a few times, of course, over at McMaster University, our world-class university. But uh, it's good to have you back here, and very timely, obviously, with the budget coming in. Uh, just a couple of days ago with uh, Minister Morneau. I, I, I want to talk in general terms about some things, and I know there's a few things you want to bring up as well. But let's let's talk about how the budget affects your department, your portfolio, uh, with uh, with families, children, and social development. Uh, Mr. Morneau uh, talked about uh, gender-based budgeting, et cetera, and, and, and trying to make an impact on families and, and children. How, how does this affect what you're going to be doing in your department, in your portfolio? First, let me uh, reinforce what you just said, Bill, how proud we can be of McMaster University. In my former life, I had the privilege of working with a couple of of guys there in the economics department, among other places. They're very strong, and I think we we can can all be proud of what they do. Uh, Second, the the, the budget which we saw two days ago is a budget that pursues the agenda that was... uh, that was initiated last year. So we want to grow the economy in order to grow our middle class and to help more Canadians join that middle class. And I think this and this uh, agenda is particularly important in this particular area. So we, as as you saw two days ago, we're we're investing very 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 strongly in innovation. Uh, we know how key innovation is for businesses around this particular area. We're investing in workers, in infrastructure. Uh, we know how valuable. Uh, public and, and transportation infrastructure is around this uh, this area and we're investing in families so we're doing all of that because we know it's important to to support our families and women in particular and, and as you said earlier there is a strong agenda around women in that budget we know import how important it is for families and for businesses also that's one of the key elements that, uh, that, that we as a community have been looking for for many many years from federal governments uh, is, is money for affordable housing. Talk to us about that portfolio. And by the way, it, it, you don't have to go too many de- degrees of separation to talk about how that is going to have a positive impact on women in the workforce, too. That's right. Well, two two areas which uh, relate to what you just said for the to the ability of our mothers and and girls to uh, to do as well as anyone else in our in our communities. So, uh, well, housing uh, housing is particularly important for the development of our children and for physical safety, of course, and mental health, and for the ability of our families to feel well and to do well, to have access to childcare, to education services, to participate in the labor market. On that, may I also add that in my own mandate, you may refer to that earlier, in my own mandate as Minister of Families, Children, and Social Development, I'm also working and will be working very hard with all provinces, including Ontario, to uh, enhance their support uh, for child care services. Uh, child care is extremely important for the early learning, the early, early development of our children. Whenever uh, quality child care is available, it's also very important to make parents and mothers in particular able to participate in the labor force. How do you get to the point, though, where it's affordable? Uh, there was, a, as you recall, Minister, a time back in uh, when Paul Martin was Prime Minister, uh, there was an institution of a national child care program. Ken Dryden was the minister in charge of the, that portfolio at that time. They lost the subsequent election. The, the, the next government, the Harper government, of course, decided to, to kill the program altogether. Uh, they gave tax credits instead. Well, you know, getting a, a one-time payment at the end of the year doesn't really help when you have to pay weekly for child care. How can you make it affordable for families that really need that child care? 
Well, we're doing do the two things, in fact. Uh, as you will know, in last July, we put into place a, a better uh, Canada Child Benefit that is providing a lot more help to families of middle class, uh, to, to, to members of middle class families, uh, which in this area is helping nine families out of 10 with on average $200 more per month non-taxable. Why were we able to do that? Because, because we're not sending checks to families of millionaires anymore. So we're focusing our help on families that need it more. So middle class and lower income families in particular. Now we also announced two days ago uh, a renewed leadership of the federal government in supporting the work of provinces and territories, in Ontario in particular, when it comes to providing quality and affordable childcare, especially for those families that struggle uh, in accessing uh, that uh, those childcare services. So, uh, single. Parent families, in particular, for instance, you know, families that have special needs, uh, lower-wage families, you know, families that find it quite hard to afford uh, quality childcare for their children. So we're going to prioritize those investments in full respect of the jurisdiction of Ontario. But I think we all agree that it's very important for families and children. Do you foresee a national program uh, that, that can be developed? Uh, not unlike what they tried to do back about 10, 15 years ago, I guess it was. Uh, because trying to get the provinces together on anything uh, is like herding cats sometimes. I mean, they're all going in different directions. They've all got their own ideas. You've seen that with health care. Uh, are you optimistic that you can get the provinces to, to some sort of a consensus on child care? The good news is that we've almost reached an agreement with all provinces and territories on key principles. So affordable, accessible, and quality child care. We also agree on flexible childcare, flexibility f- to, uh, to recognize the varying, the, the different needs of our families. Not, not all families are the same. And also to recognize, and though that, that prov- then provinces and territories insist very much on, on that, to recognize that they, at the end, must implement those, uh, those childcare investments. So, as you know, across Canada, we have a diversity of, uh, of, uh, of arrangements and systems. Some so, good, some not so good. Precisely that. So, and the federal government is not going to impose a one rule fits all uh, procedure. So we, we, want, we need to be respectfully working with provinces and territories. However, the good news is that we are, we are agreeing on the main principles and action plans will be agreed to by all provinces and the federal government. So it will be perfectly transparent to everyone what the resources will be invested for. Maybe, the, the, I guess the penultimate example is in the province of Quebec itself. That, that, that seems to be the system that a lot of people would like to emulate right now. I know it's not cheap, but it seems to be the most effective system. Well, Quebec uh, has uh, has uh, learned all kinds of very useful lessons for itself and for other provinces over the last 20 years. Now, the Quebec mm-hmm. system has been there for 20 years. I've been a privileged observer of that system. Uh, it has made a big difference in for children, and particularly children living in challenging environments uh, when it comes to making them be well and do well in life, and a big difference for, for mothers. Now, the, 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 the female labor participation rate in Quebec has jumped quite a lot in the last 20 years. So it, it has led to gen, more gender equity in the sense of you know, the, no, more, uh, more equitable distribution of opportunities among, uh, among, among parents. You know? So everyone having the opportunity to do uh, the type, look after children, of course, but in a way which is uh, perhaps not, not so stressful on mothers. One of the other things that uh, I know that you heard going into this budget process and uh, when the, during the listening tour that the Prime Minister had and, and, and other ministers as well was more flexibility when it came to parental leave, uh, 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 maternity leave in some people's minds, etc. What, what's the budget do for that? 
very good things, I think. And the reason is that we've been listening very closely to what Canadians uh, were hoping we would be doing over the last year. So listening is very key. And I'm very pleased that Karina Gould was here uh, a couple of uh, days ago. She was an example of someone as an MP at the time and now as a minister who worked very hard to make the voices of mothers in particular well known to our governments. And he and many others said that more flexibility and more inclusiveness when it comes to parental and maternity benefits and sickness benefits, that was uh, not only demanded, but also very important for, for families and, and mothers in particular. So a more flexible parental leave system, you know, allowing mothers and parents and, and fathers to take their, uh, their, their parental leave as they, uh, as they see better suited for themselves a more uh, flexible maternity leave uh, uh, system as well, now, being able to take their maternity leave a bit earlier than otherwise. So um, leave the labor force for all sorts of reasons a bit earlier than the planned uh, birth uh, date. Uh, same thing for um, compassionate care. We've introduced a new compassionate care uh, benefit so that uh, it's a bit it's more flexible and inclusive than the earlier system. We know how important it is for our seniors population and also for uh, daughters and sons and cousins and, and aunts and uncles not to, to have this ability to be supported while they look after uh, someone that they love. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the flexibility for the, uh, the, the, the child care thing is pretty good, important, too. I, I, I can go to 18 months now instead of 12. It's not, sadly, it's the same amount of money, I'm, and I'm hoping that at some point there'll be some, some flexibility and some increases in that, too, because that's the, the, the pushback I'm hearing from some people who I heard what Mr. Morneau was saying. Listen, while we've got you here, I, I want to ask about the broader picture as well, though, Minister. I know you were in Windsor yesterday. Uh, they've got some concerns about what's happening with our neighbors to the south. Uh, many people looked at what Mr. Morneau presented the other day in the House of Commons and said, well, a lot of stuff here kind of depends on what's going to happen in the states. Uh, they're pretty apprehensive in Windsor. We're pretty apprehensive here in Hamilton, too. The, uh, the head of ArcelorMittal de Fasco is in Ottawa, of course, uh, before the Steel Committee today to express their concerns like this. Uh, how is the government handling this? I know the Prime Minister was down to see President Trump a little while ago. Uh, many of the ministers have made trips to some of the states right now. Are we building bridges, or is there still this apprehension and this concern about what their budget may have an impact on ours? Now, there are two objectives in that engagement. The first one is to make it clear, and we all have a responsibility to do so, make it clear that this trade relationship that we have with the U.S. is important for both of our countries. There are millions of, of middle-class jobs that depend on either side of the border on continuing and improving on this trade relationship. They, Canadians understand that really well. Americans understand that really well overall. I think the U.S. administration is also uh, understanding it um, perhaps better than, than a few weeks ago. But we need to keep making that very clear. And we all have a responsibility. The Hamilton uh, Chamber of Commerce, uh, I know, is, is playing a role. And the same thing for the Windsor uh, Chamber of Commerce, which I had the privilege of seeing yesterday. So we all, whatever opportunity arises where we can signal to our American friends how important it is to trade with them, we should be taking uh, advantage of it. The second thing is that we are a different we are we live in a different country so we, we it's, it's all right if we have a different uh, agenda than another country's agenda we know in canada how important it is to innovate to grow uh, to invest in our workers uh, to invest in those uh, sectors of our economy that we know are the sectors of the future so uh, digital economy clean tech the agri-food industry the uh, advanced manufacturing industry of which we see many signs here in this particular area 
uh, regional area, uh, regional um, region. So it's 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 we we have a different agenda, we, but it's it's perfectly compatible with having a good trade relationship with uh, our American uh, friends. The other element to that as well, and, and it's one of the things I'm just glad to see the ministers doing. Uh, your your uh, cabinet colleagues is going to those states that are impacted by this. Uh, because ultimately, I mean, the president can make recommendations, but it's going to be the Congress that passes a budget. Uh, and uh, we've already seen that there's some disagreement between the Congress and what the president himself would like to see happen vis-a-vis health care and also with some of the, the economic policies that he's talked about right now. Uh, those Congress people that you're talking about uh, and have talked with in the last couple of weeks are ultimately the ones that are going to be making the decision on this, and they're going to probably be representing their areas. And, uh, you know, if there's somebody in Michigan or somebody in Ohio or in Pennsylvania, they probably better than the Trump administration themselves understand the the bond between these two countries when it comes to trade. Yeah, trade is a win-win situation. And, uh, and American families know that. American businesses know that as well. The, their representatives in, in, in Washington also should understand that. There are sometimes people that claim that... Uh, uh, trade is bad uh, and should not be uh, should not be supported. But when we talk to these people and when the, we engage with all those that that benefit from uh, from free trade, you know, eventually everyone comes to to reason, and that's what the objective is is in the current circumstances to work together in order to make it clear that not only are we doing well with current trade uh, agreements, but we can do even better if we improve on those trade agreements. The biggest concern that we've seen when, when you start crunching numbers about the budget itself is, is A, the deficit, B, the debt, uh, that we seem to be digging ourselves a financial hole that even many of the experts who have viewed the budget now are saying, well, you know, it's going to be decades, not years, before we get out of this. Uh, how does the government approach that, and how do you try to get out of that financial hole? Very important question. There are two things to, to be very mindful of. First, uh, the, uh, the fact that over the last years, and particularly over the last two years, we've seen all sorts of very serious economic challenges in Canada and across the world. In fact, more than half of the deficit which people see, see is due to the slow growth that we've seen in the last two years, in particular the fact that before the last election, out of the nine months that preceded that election, we had six months of recession. So regardless of what government would be in power now, we would have a significant uh, deficit, well, a significant half, more than half of what we are, we're seeing now. What we also know is that the challenges that we are now facing and the low interest rates and the, infra- the importance of infrastructure investments, the importance of supporting our workers and our, our economy make it even more important for us to invest in short-term growth, but also with a long-term uh, agenda to supporting the, the type of, uh, of, of, of innovation and long-term uh, long-term economic development that we all need uh, for, for families and businesses. So it's, it's, it's the right time to do those investments, and they will generate uh, no, reduced deficit over time, and they will also certainly generate improved living standards for families and improve opportunities for businesses. But aren't, aren't we just passing these problems on to future generations when we do that? Twenty years ago, what we call the debt to je- the deficit, the debt to GDP ratio, which this, this is the ability of the government to uh, uh, to repay its debt. Now that so, if you divide your mortgage by your income, if you do that exercise in, in at the federal government's level, twenty years ago we had a, a ratio of seventy-five percent. 
In 2006, in 2006, we had a ratio of 31%. That's still 31%. It will remain at 31% over the next years. It will even start to decline. So that means that we, even with the strong investments we're making in businesses and in families, our debt-to-deficit ratio, uh, debt-to-GDP ratio will remain the same. So even fall, which is good news for the financial sustainability and responsibility of our government. But if interest rates start to rise again, uh, we're, 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 we're... It's it's almost as if there's a dark cloud on the horizon. You just don't know how far down there it is, and because inevitably, as you know, as an economist, I mean, there are economic cycles. The rates aren't going to stay as low as they are now. At some point, they have to increase, and that's going to have an impact on that debt. And that's why it's so important to keep monitoring very closely the economic situation. But at this time, we know how important it is to invest. Uh, this is exactly when we need to do that with low interest rates and with the challenges that we see everywhere and the need to build confidence. Now, our businesses, our families are going to invest as they need to do if they feel confident about their future. So the government also has this role to say that, yes, we're there to support you. Yes, we're going to have a better outlook in the future. And yes, it's important for you to invest. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Active day, a busy day, and uh, sometimes a frustrating day. At City Hall yesterday, after a full day of budget busting, Hamilton City Councilors have opted to, well, hit the brakes on the 10-year transit plan for one thing, and a number of other things to try to get our property taxes down. It's getting down to the short strokes right now, and uh, there's still some big decisions to be made. Joining us to talk about all of this is Chris Murray, the City Manager for the City of Hamilton. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show here on CHML. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing today? Doing great, Bill. Thanks. When you talked to us a few weeks ago, uh, that was just after the uh, decision made to, of course, let a number of city staffers go. You told us that the possibility existed, that that might happen again, too. And uh, obviously that uh, came to to fruition yesterday with uh, the suggestion that a number of other people are going to have to be let go. Where are you on that now? Uh, as you probably know, we're meeting again this morning, yeah. in fact, in about half an hour. So uh, uh, discussions are still going on, so there's no... Uh, firm final uh, answer in terms of the uh, total number of full-time uh, employees. But, um, you know, there's a, a number I was certainly communicated yesterday, and and uh, the figure was 83.5, which uh, I just want to clarify for people. Um, 29 of that uh, 83.5 figure was related to uh, uh, bus drivers that we were uh, proposing to hire um, but because we're not acquiring the buses in 2017, we're going to defer them. Um, and then the 23, which we had talked about before, of the uh, uh, non-unionized uh, workforce, uh, senior leaders in our organization, that's part of the 29, which then leaves us a figure of about 31.5. And uh, that's where uh, individuals are, are connected to the uh, service discussions that we're having right now. Uh, with council, so I, I wouldn't uh, at this point say that uh, that's a firm number because again we're uh, we're working with council on uh, on what it is that they uh, they want to cut and what they want to keep. That uh, that bottom line number that you just talked about, Chris, that thirty one point five. Uh, these are people that are currently employed. Are these union or non union, or is that yet to be determined? Well, it's it's certainly a mix of both, and in fact, uh, some of these uh, uh, some of the thirty one point five are in fact. Uh, individuals that uh, can retire, and uh, we wouldn't necessarily need to replace them. 
some of those positions are in fact vacant, so there would be no one impacted. So it's not quite as daunting as I'm sure people may think. Um, but uh, unless you're one of the 31. Well, unless you're one of the 31, which is no different than I think than one of the 23, that uh, mm-hmm. it's always a difficult decision. But uh, I won't say right now we're there in terms of what that firm number is, um, because again, we're going to be having discussions with council, and it's certainly their right to decide what they want to do, uh, what they want to do in terms of service delivery. So um, that remains to be seen, is what I can tell you. Chris, you mentioned the transit file just a second ago, too. Let's get some clarity on that, because there's, I, I saw some postings on social media yesterday that suggested the council's decided not to invest in transit. That's not really the case, is it? No. The council's been investing considerably in transit over the last couple of years. And so, um, you know, and, and I don't see us uh, uh, moving away from that long-term commitment. And uh, so, I mean, the idea that there'd be a pause... Uh, I think, as uh, Mike Zagarek, our head of uh, finance and corporate services, said, uh, why would you tax taxpayers uh, for people who um, you don't need this year but will likely need you next year? And, and certainly our intent is to grow the transit system. So I understand the frustrations that some have, but uh, Council has been um, investing in transit over the last few years, and, and I expect they'll continue to do so. Is that an area, though, that you may do some trimming nonetheless? I mean, obviously, I understand part of the the freeze for this year in that 10-year transit plan is the fact that the federal money hasn't come through yet. But over and above that, there's still some discussion about reducing some of those service levels, isn't there? Uh, not so much in transit. Uh, I think, uh, if anything, we're, we're trying to grow the transit system, so... Um, I don't think our focus is there. I think uh, uh, the pause is just that. It's a pause. And uh, and then I expect next year we'll be resuming, uh, you know, the investments. And, I mean, this city is uh, does need a, an excellent transit system. We have many great workers in our, in our system currently. But, uh, you know, as you're an aging population and a growing city, uh, transit is pretty key. So um, we get that, and, and a great decision, was you probably know, was made yesterday in terms of darts. Uh, we're going to extend that contract for another three years, and so uh, there'll be stability for those people that rely on that service. So, um, you know, a lot of, I think I think there's, you know, real progress being made over the last couple of years, and we'll continue to, to go in that direction. All right, street parking. Uh, this is, of course, in city-owned lots and, and, of course, parking meter areas as well. Uh, you talked to some time ago, and I guess this is something that's been kicked around for a long time about an increase. I, I got to tell you, I'm not totally upset about this. I mean, we had one of the lowest parking rates in, in Ontario, didn't we? Oh, it, and we still will. Um, and and on top of that, we want to modernize our parking system. So, uh, you know, I, we hear the frustrations all the time about uh, just coin-operated technology, and so uh, all of that is going to change, and uh, we'll we'll be a, a modern. Uh, you know, city when it comes to parking, and so yes, uh, the you know the rates will go up, but we're still going to be low compared to others. So, uh, we're not anywhere near hitting the Toronto type parking uh, costs, which I know no one here would support. Uh, but uh, you know, a little bit of progress there is uh, it's not the end of the world. Well, they're talking about a uh, dollar fifty as opposed to a buck, and and, and that's. I know nobody likes to see anything go up and increase, but I mean, if you're going to modernize the system, there's got to be a cost of that as well. And let's face it, it's a revenue generator for the city. It is. And, uh, you know, and plus it's uh, it's an important function when it comes to uh, business owners. Uh, They want it to be reasonably priced, but, you know, you know those shops that, uh, 
you know, if you could park all day in front of a shop for free, um, it doesn't always do great things for that business owner to have no movement in front of their, their front door. So, um, you know, we, we get that as well. So uh, modernizing it and, uh, you know, a reasonable increase. Uh, and, yes, it does help to uh, address taxpayers' uh, costs in the, in the long run. What about the idea about increasing the uh, the recreation fees? What does that entail? Um, you know, again, and we look at that every year, and uh, it's just uh, making sure that there's, um, you know, certainly parity across the, the community that were, you know, the fees you would pay in Dundas or the fees you would pay in Stony Creek. Um, and that, uh, you know, they in some way, shape, or form, uh, you know, uh, cover some of the costs of operating these facilities. So, um, I mean, that's always the intent, and uh, and I think that's no different than what we're doing right now. But why would you exclude ice rentals, uh, at municipal golf? I would think those would be the two cash cows when it comes to rentals of, of uh, recreational facilities. Um, I mean, that's a good question. I think um, uh, certainly those are... As other uh, recreational uh, um, uh, services are, they're all important. Uh, uh, you know, there isn't, uh, for the time being, certainly, there isn't an interest in going in that direction. And could that change in the future? Of course. Uh, but for right now, it's it's not going to change. Uh, it just seems rather odd. And I may, my first inclination is because, well, you know, if you, every time you ever talked about raising golfing fees, the city council chamber gets filled with golfers that say, don't do this to us. But by, by saying, okay, we're going to exclude that, my concern is that, the, you know, families that use rec centers, things of that nature, swimming lessons and, and things like that are, are, may be affected by this adversely. And they're the ones who, in many cases, can't afford those sorts of increases. So I'm just, I know that's not your decision. It's going to be a city council decision. Right. But uh, I'm hoping that saner heads will prevail when it comes into that. Let's, let's crunch some numbers now. Uh, Chris Murray is with us, of course, city manager for the city of Hamilton. Another budget meeting coming up later on this morning uh, as they try to uh, solidify uh, some of these policies. Uh, the 1.8%, is that still on the radar now, or is, is that just uh, gone now because of some of the other no, pressures no. that have happened? No, actually, I mean, council is, um, you know, uh, was uh, was given an update yesterday from Mike Zagarek. Uh, uh, that has been and remains their target, certainly. Um, overall, uh, we're at uh, 2.3. When I say overall, I mean departments, boards, and agencies uh, as well as, uh, you know, addressing the, the half a percent that we add every year for capital. Um, you know, I think people always worry about our, our infrastructure and whether or not we're maintaining it. Council has for uh, about the last decade has been every year putting a bit more into the bank in terms of uh, addressing infrastructure. So that, uh, that point five is included. In fact, Bill, uh, the departments, you know, that's certainly something I have uh, some influence over. Um, we came in at 1.1. 1. 1. Um, so uh, certainly the target was 1.8. We came in at 1.1. 1. 1, and when you add the 0.5 for capital, we're actually at 1.6 as an organization. Now, uh, you know, that could change uh, very minorly, uh, depending on what, what happens today with the conversation with council. But um, you know, uh, a lot was done. In fact, I think this is the lowest the departments have ever come in. Um, keep in mind that, you know, we're dealing with, uh, uh, you know, pay increases and uh, in the order of about 2% and plus other cost drivers such as energy and, and so on. So, I mean, there's been a fair bit of effort put into the departments, and I know council was uh, very vocal yesterday about recognizing the efforts of staff. So, 
Um, you know, we sit overall at 2.3. Uh, that's about for a home that's in excess of, I think, about $330,000 uh, of value. Um, the uh, the tax increase over year would be about $75. So, um, but you know, we're not done, and uh, so you know, it's it's. I think it's important that council gives us a target and. And I know they're contemplating, rather than waiting to the fall, that uh, we may get some marching orders uh, immediately to continue to, uh, you know, keep the foot on the uh, on the gas to, uh, you know, keep taxes down and uh, and work through the year on ways in which we can do that. And we're certainly up for it. One of the other policies, and it's I, I guess it's fair to classify this as contentious in some people's minds anyway, uh, is the idea of a living wage. And uh, I know city council has been asked to consider something like that. Uh, if they were to do that, what kind of an impact would that have on the budget? Uh, it's about a million dollar uh, impact. And just so as people realize, I mean, we are very much for the most part a living wage organization. And by that, I mean, in terms of our full-time complement, uh, there's uh, no one is uh, below the living living wage is around is around fifteen dollars fifteen fifty an hour uh, in that area. So uh, if you're a full time employee, I mean you are making above that. Um, this is really to address some of the uh, the part time uh, staff that we have. Uh, it's usually seasonal. Um, that uh, when we add it up to bring them up to uh, the living wage, it's, it's going to total about a million dollars of additional money. And if that were to happen, I know we're talking in the hypothetical here, but I know there's going to be pressure on council to do that. Uh, if that million dollars is added, what's that do to, the, to that rate, that 2.3% that you're talking about? Yeah, so uh, 1% uh, increase on the tax levy is about $8 million. So $1 million would be about a 0.15, roughly, or 0.13. Um, so, I mean, you would it, it would push us to uh, potentially... Uh, about a 2.4, uh, 2.43, uh, something like that. So, um, you know, and again, that, that 2.3, and it starts to get complicated when we start talking about the education tax, which we, uh, which does have an effect on, on, our, on our taxpayers. I mean, uh, you know, we're hoping that the education tax, in fact, helps to reduce that 2.3 lower, uh, as it's done in the last several years that I've been here. So um, it, it starts to complicate things, I know, but uh, but if, if the living wage was to go through, uh, it would add about a point one something. The 2.3 that, uh, that you're talking about, or even the 1.8, if council wants to, to start whittling down even further to get down to there, it's, it's, yeah. it's really almost a, a hypothetical number, though, isn't it, Chris? Because you're not factoring in assessment there, and, and that's obviously the other part of that equation to decide how much my taxes and your taxes are going to be. And it seems yeah, I mean, that everybody's assessment, I'm sure, has gone up. I know it's supposed to be zero-sum, but with the housing boom and the way the prices have gone right now, right. Uh, a lot of people got bad news when they got those impact notices a little while ago. Well, I mean, what? Uh, uh, in fact, when we provide the chart, uh, and we'll do that certainly today, uh, we'll go ward by ward and show what the uh, tax increase will be. Um, so, I mean, you know, for in, if we were to, say, remain at 2.3 today, uh, there are um, t- wards actually 1, 2, and 3 are the ones that have seen the most uh, r- uh, increase in their, their residential value. And uh, so um, 
So they would experience a, a slightly higher than 2.3 impact uh, on their taxes. Other uh, other uh, wards in our municipality, in fact, are going in the opposite direction. So it's quite conceivable, depending on which ward you're in. I know some of the rural wards, uh, they, in fact, will not see uh, a 2.3. In fact, what they may experience is something below, in some cases, 2. So it kind of varies depending on what ward you're in. And I know that sounds complicated, but that's just the that is the way it uh, unfolds across our, our community. So... Um, yeah, the 1.8 is, it's not a hard science number. Um, it's a its a number that's, um, you know, it, I don't think uh, inflation is what's driving the 1.8, but it's its an approximate to what the uh, rising cost of everything is. And uh, it does, you know, the council does take into consideration the uh, collective agreements we have and recognizes that energy costs are, are you know sometimes volatile and and there's uh, commodity prices that, that we have for recycling that can fluctuate so they're trying to take into consideration all these things to arrive at a you know an aggressive number you're listening to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on am 900 chml Burlington Mary Rick Goldberg, you know the numbers 905-645-3221 645-3221 star 9900 is a toll-free number on the cell phone by email, bkelly at 900chml.com, and, of course, on Twitter at chml Bill Kelly. Your questions, your comments for Burlington Mayor Rick Goldbring. Uh, good to see you. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, it's good to see you, Bill, and thank you very much for having me back. Well, let's, uh, let's carry on the theme. Uh, we just had the minister in here a couple of minutes ago, of course, uh, Minister Duclos, uh, talking about the federal budget. Uh, your reaction to, to what was announced in Ottawa the other day and the impact it's going to have on your community? Well, there's certainly there was some uh, good funding announcements with regard to uh, transit and, and uh, um, mitigating climate change and, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So we're sorting through the details, but I believe there will be uh, lots of opportunity for the city of Burlington uh, to get funding from the uh, federal government from some of the programs that they, that they uh, announced a couple of days ago. When, whenever you get into situations like this where there's a bit of a cash crunch, you always worry that they're going to turn off the tap. But it sounds as if they're going to hold true anyway to their commitment to cities. Uh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. They've committed uh, $20 billion for public transit, um, and they did that last year. And Burlington, recognizing we have our own transit service, will get some uh, benefit from that. Uh, there's actually going to be an announcement next Friday for uh, the first phase of the infrastructure funding that they announced uh, last year uh, that we're getting. There's an announcement next Friday morning at our uh, transit facility. This may sound uh, like a rhetorical question. Why does it take so long for the money to get out and into the cities? You know, it, just seems, it doesn't matter who's in government. It just it, 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 They move at glacial speed, it seems. You know, they do move at glacial speed, and sometimes the city and the region moves at glacial speed as well. And I guess the bottom line is it is uh, taxpayers' money, and there's got to be appropriate process uh, to follow to make sure that the money is going to be used for what it's supposed to be used for. Uh, that's my best explanation. <laughs> it's got to be frustrating, though, uh, for councils, uh, because obviously, uh, you know, you're going through the budget process, and you, you hear the announcement, and you're thinking, well, okay, we can count on that money. And not necessarily. Uh, Hamilton Council just had, as you heard on the news here on CHML, uh, basically defer the transit plan for one year because the money that was supposed to be here isn't here yet. Yeah. We're, we're in good shape that way because, in fact, this year we are developing a, a new transit 
uh, strategy. Um, at Halton Region, we approved uh, mobility management uh, strategy development uh, at Halton Region. So we're in the development stage as far as expanding our transit uh, services. So the timing is good. We're going to be getting some some gas tax on the provincial money, an increase in a couple years. Um, and uh, there's the potential for funding from this, this particular announcements that were made on, on uh, Wednesday. Uh, so we're in good shape because we're gearing up. And when we're ready uh, to ask for the money, the funding should be there. What about ridership? That's always a concern with any transit system. So what about ridership? Well, Burlington ridership is not is not huge. We're one of the smaller transit systems in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. We have about 2.2 million ridership a year. Uh, we do not have a, a major post-secondary institution that contributes to ridership the way McMaster does in Hamilton and Brock does in St. Catharines and University of Guelph does in, in the city of Guelph. Um, but what we are doing this year is, is our focus really is on our development of our official plan. The plan has been developed in draft form and actually being released uh, this week. We're going to have a workshop talking about the draft official plan uh, in a couple of weeks. And uh, a big part of the official plan is defining our major transportation or transit corridors and our frequent transit network. And that is in the draft official plan, which will feed into further investment to improve transit service. Let's, let's expand on that if we could for a few minutes uh, before we get, go to phone calls here at 645-3221 and star 9900. Uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring is with us here. Uh, maybe we should explain for those who may not be aware of, of, of the terminology, what is in, inclusive in the in the official plan? What are you? What's the exercise and what will you be doing? So th the official plan is a provincially mandated document that really is the blueprint uh, for city building. Uh, the official plan defines what type of housing goes where, defines where our employment lands will be and how they should develop going forward. It defines where our primary and secondary intensification areas are. It defines where our, our rural area are, is and, and what should happen within our rural area. So it's a very uh, comprehensive document that uh, tries to be as definitive as possible uh, as defining how, how land use in the 185 square kilometers of the city of Burlington uh, should be used going forward. And this is done how often? Uh, this is done, uh, in, in Burlington's case, uh, we've been working on this new official plan for some time now. Uh, really, you're supposed to review it every five years, and we've been in process. By the time you get it all done, it's probably every 10 years. By the time you, uh, you get all the work done as far as the review, our official plan, we're actually, the, we, we have a draft uh, new official plan. So, so it's uh, very different than what we had 23 years ago when it was developed in 1994. We did a major review in 2005, 2006. Um, so now we are coming up with a new uh, official plan. It should be done every five or six years, but by the time it gets done, it's about every 10 or 11 years. And uh, obviously, Burlington has changed in, in, since then as well. I mean, uh, well, that's why we need a new official city. plan. That's why we need a new official plan. So back in 1994, there was all sorts of greenfield development still mm -hmm. remaining, the traditional suburban greenfield development. There was lots of opportunity for that. And recognizing now there's very little opportunity for traditional greenfield, suburban, ground-oriented, 
housing, detached housing. Uh, so our future is intensification in fill and redevelopment, and we have a draft official plan to respond to that. So how prescriptive is it? As, uh, for instance, if you say that area there is going to be multi-residential, this part here, and et cetera, do you, do you put building heights and things like that? Is it that prescriptive? Uh, the zoning bylaws where you become okay. more prescriptive. So what will follow after the official plan is worked out is a new zoning bylaw. And so right now that the official plan is a more of a high level document, it is definitive, but as far as being prescriptive, that really is the, uh, the zoning bylaw. And I should point out that, you know, within our draft official plan, we have designated primary intensification areas within our city. And the four primary intensification areas are our downtown and the areas around the three GO stations within the city of Burlington. So right now, um, you know, the official plan, the draft official plan is, is a really ahead of the work that's being done, doing some thorough analysis of our downtown and thorough analysis of the areas around our GO station as far as the potential for development there. Um, but that, that, those studies that are done in our sort of what we call our four mobility hubs um, will be added into the discussion in the next 12, 18 months. Okay, who gets to take part in this? You mentioned there's going to be a workshop on this. Is there public input? Do they have public meetings? How do you go through that process? Oh, there's going to be a launch of the, the process in April. There'll be ample opportunity for input into the official plan and input, in, input into the development of our secondary plans within our uh, downtown as well as our, around our three GO stations. Um, yeah, there'll be ample opportunity. That will be announced in, in April. Okay, so for those listening, and they want to have some say as to what's going to be happening there. Obviously, they'll, they'll have that opportunity to, to do so. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I encourage everybody, you know, we have a newsletter we send out of the mayor's office every month, and people are interested in receiving that because we provide a lot of information uh, with regard to what's happening in the city, certainly around their official plan and other other issues and challenges. Uh, mayor at Burlington.ca is the email address, and you can email us, and we'll put you on our, our mailing list. With uh, Burlington Mayor Rick Goldring, uh, let me uh, address the elephant in the room, uh, which is, of course, the uh, school accommodation review. You were here last month, and we talked briefly about that. And yeah. and, and again, to reiterate, of course, it's, it's not a city council uh, decision. This is done by the Board of Education, clearly, but it's certainly having an impact uh, on your community. And, uh, well, it's not going swimmingly, I guess is maybe the best way to describe this right now. It's a terrible process. It's divisive. Uh, it uh, creates, uh, it pits uh, neighbors against neighbors and, and school communities against school communities. It's absolutely uh, a terrible process. Uh, the Board of Education is following a provincially prescribed system. Uh, I don't agree with the approach that they've taken. You know, the way they set it up is they have uh, the, the, the committee that looks at this issue is primarily composed of two representatives of each of the uh, mm -hmm. representing each of the seven high schools, seven public high schools within the city of Burlington. So when you're appointed representing a school, what's your role? Your prime role is to preserve your school, is to save your school. So it's very difficult to have big picture strategic discussions when you've been uh, appointed or voted to serve a certain school community um, and your objective is to preserve that school. Um, it, it, is a, it is an absolutely terrible, terrible process. Um, and I, I listen. I'm, I've I've heard from all of them. Okay, from from those parent groups, from the neighborhood groups, from everybody else. And I'm sympathetic to them. I I, I get that. 
But but your point is well taken, and with the best of intentions, these people, I guess, serve on this committee, but their job is to basically, it's a turf war. That's what it comes down to. That's what it comes down to, unfortunately, and uh, if I was making recommendations to the Ministry of Education, I would look at revising uh, the process and revising who you have on this particular committee. You certainly need opportunities for everybody who is interested in the issue to engage and to be heard. That goes without saying. That has to be done. That has to be done. But as far as the people that are are tasked with coming up with an alternative or two um, needs to be, you need to have big picture thinking in order to to do that. And the process does not encourage uh, big big picture thinking. It encourages divisiveness and emotional reactions uh, to the potential for school closures. It's absolutely terrible. Well, it puts everybody on defense, doesn't it? puts everybody on defense. And, you know, there are, there are issues that the school board has to deal with. There are issues around, the, around, the, uh, around costs. And the fact is that um, in Oakville, for example, we, we were all part of the same board of education. In Oakville, they have an average number of students in each Oakville high school of 1,300. And in Burlington, the average is 750. Um, so clearly there's an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, and, but, I, but I think if, if, if I was in control of this process, I would make sure that we all understand, all those who are interested, understand what the issue is and what problem is attempted to be solved before you get into solutions. And I don't believe that was done. Well, because we've seen it here in Hamilton, and like I say, I've, I've heard from all the groups in Burlington about this as well right now. And, and I, uh, to your point, Mr. Mayor, I don't know that the board has actually articulated exactly what they're trying to do. I understand that there are population shifts, uh, and, and those need to be addressed as well. We get that. But it, why does it have to be at the expense of other neighborhoods? Well, and, and but, you know, the process, when it starts out, uh, the director of education has to, he's mandated uh, by provincial guidelines to come up with a preliminary recommendation that's fed into the system. Well, the preliminary recommendation includes, in Burlington, closing two particular schools. So all of a sudden, you get those school communities on the defense, all of a sudden. So I think, in, in my view, you need to have some sort of mechanism or process to have the community really understand what the issue is and not jump to solutions so quickly. Not jump, jump. You need to define exactly what the problem is. And I believe that that hasn't been done properly. Well, and, and have they looked at, uh, properly at, at uh, potential solutions to this as well? I mean, you know, does, is, is closure, which is pretty drastic, I would think, especially for the people that if students go into those schools in those neighborhoods and those communities, is that the only option? It's the only one I hear them talking about. It is the only one I hear them talking about. I guess there's the potential to uh, alter the school boundaries and, and spread out uh, enrollment, but you still have the excess capacity of sixteen or 1,700 pupil vacancies in the high school system in Burlington. You know, I, I'm going on like, I, like I'm involved in this issue, <laughs> and it really is a school board issue. I wish this was my issue. I really do wish this was my issue because I would be out involved uh, much more than I am. I would be working with the community. I would be attempting to bring people together, recognizing it is a divisive issue, but we need to bring people together to really understand what we're trying to solve. And we also need to look at it not just from a pure education and student lens, we need to look at it from a, a, from a broad community lens. And so my, my wish is, my hope is, uh, my encouragement to the director in the, in the school board is to um, consider the impact on the community as well as the other considerations they have to uh, be involved with, but consider the impact on the community and try to negatively impact the least number of people. 
I'm, I'm hesitating to bring up any one school because I, I, I probably do that at the risk of offending all the other people from the other schools to say, ah, you're paying. But you look at the central school, which is uh, the, seems to be at the, the eye of the storm here. Well, but because it was stated at the very beginning of the process that the preliminary recommendation is that both central and Pearson high schools should close. Yeah. And, and it's, it's uh, what, what bothers me about this, and I saw this happen with the process here in Hamilton uh, when they did the elementary schools and the high schools uh, accommodation reviews here in Hamilton as well, is they seem to have made a decision, and then they work backwards to try to justify that decision. And that's not going to bring anybody on side. No. No, it's not going to bring anybody on side. No, it, it, as I say, the process is, is terrible. There needs to be a much more thought about how you engage the community. And, and the process, in fact, needs to define the problem first. We need to get agreement um, from the community about what issue is attempted to be solved here as opposed to jumping into providing uh, divisive solutions at the very beginning of the process. And, and there's, a, there's a case to be made, I know, for all the schools. I get that. But, but Central just sticks out for me for one reason. And you just talked about how the downtown is so important to, it, to any city, not just to Burlington, but to every city. Uh, and, and to actually you know, extrapolate that out of that area and simply say, okay, we're not going to do that. That's not going to be there anymore. Right. First of all, it's a grand old building. Right. But second of all, the impact that would have on the downtown core, which is where you're trying to actually, uh, you know, motivate people to move into that area and spend time down there too. That 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 could be catastrophic to that area. No matter what the, the reuse of that building might be, uh, you'd think, you know, that, that's got to be part of, of the rebuilding. That's got to be part of the, the, the plan going forward. And, and I know you can make that same argument for all the other schools, too. You know, there was a great column uh, written by Denise Davey in The Spectator this morning who is involved with... Sure, uh, I know Denise, yeah. Bateman. And, and uh, you know, because Bateman High School is on the block as well. And there's actually four high schools out of the seven high schools in Burlington that are included in, in the various options that are under discussion. Um, so you got four high schools and, and potentially two of those. So you can make a case for every high school and, and, and saving every high school uh, in Burlington. Have you, um, have you had any conversations, with, Mr. Mayor, but with members of the Board of Education about what, what exactly they're doing? Because this, this is regional, right? Now, this is not just this is not the uh, Burlington Board of Education. This is Halton Region. This is Halton Region. I, I've had discussion with trustees. I've had discussion with uh, um, uh, the Director of Education. I've had discussion with our member of Provincial Parliament uh, and Cabinet Minister Elner McMahon because really this is a provincially yeah. mandated process. So I, I've had discussion. I, I'm, I'm uncertain as exactly what the um, solution is to the challenge that we're in and other communities are in across the province of Ontario. I'm on the board of the Association of Municipalities of Ontario and I believe we're going to uh, this is going to be discussed at our board meeting next week. Um, yeah, it's uh, not it's not a problem unique to Burlington, but that's cold comfort to you right now, isn't it? N- n- absolutely, absolutely. But you're right; it's, it's not unique, and there's issues in in rural schools, and and where rural schools have an even more importance in a community when there's only one school in a in a community of five or six thousand people or seven thousand people. So, uh, no, it is it is a big issue. But the whole affordability of education is a big issue. The quality of education is a big issue. There's nothing simple about this. Uh, unfortunately. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.